Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6. We have reached the conclusion of the book of Ephesians with the sermon today. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 24. I anticipate um, preaching on the parables of Jesus going forward, but I am open to your suggestions. Um, If you desire uh, something to be preached on, you can drop me an email. I'm not promising that I will will do it, but I will take it into prayerful consideration um, as you make suggestions. But my plans right now are uh, to preach on the parables. So, all right, we're in Ephesians 6. Let's uh, pray for God's blessing. Father, we are thankful for seeing us through uh, these six chapters of the letters to the church at Ephesus. We have received it as a letter that Paul intended for each of us and for us together as a church. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and that you yourself would speak to us this morning as we conclude this letter, that we might hear your voice, that we might respond in faith, and that we might go forward having learned all that you've taught us in this book to live lives that are pleasing in your sight. Grant it, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Hear what follows for what it is, the word of God. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, <clears throat> and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Two main points to the sermon this morning. First of all, communal blessings. We see that in verses 21 and 22. And then concluding blessings we see in verses 23 and 24. We have noted previously that Ephesians is a letter of cosmic reconciliation, that Christ has come to reconcile not just sinners uh, to God by the blood of his cross, but that he has come to reconcile all things, as Paul in Colossians teaches us, the parallel letter, uh, all things in heaven and on earth uh, are reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross concluding, of course, upon his return in a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness will dwell. And yet, at the very same time, we know from the Gospels that Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom, and with that, the new creation. And so that the age to come has entered into the present age and is co-terminous with it, so that we have the present age and the age to come currently. If uh, that's a little confusing, you can ask me about it afterwards. I don't have time to explain more. Suffice it to say that I mentioned that to you, that the book of Ephesians, uh, when you come down from that big picture, talks about the church of Jesus Christ and talks about it extensively and says that the church is God's new society for his new creation. The church is God's new society for his new creation. And it's upon that which Paul focuses as he ends this letter, kind of summarizing, if you will, all that he has taught 
uh, previous, in the previous chapters. So look at that with me if you would. First of all, he speaks of communal blessings. Note in verses 21 and 22 how Paul expresses the intention for which he writes these words no less than three times. Look at the text. He says, so that you may know how I am doing and what I am doing. At the end of verse uh, 21, uh, Tychicus will tell you everything. And in verse 22, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul states this intention three times in the space of two verses. And he does that because he is concerned for the church. He is concerned for the believers in Ephesus. And he does that because he knows that they are concerned for him. You may recall that Paul, as he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, is in prison. And prison, as gruesome as Rikers Island may be, or stories of Alcatraz out in San Francisco may be, that's nothing compared to prisons in Paul's day. Prisons were terrible. You basically got a pot and that was it. You were on your own. It was a terrible, terrible place. And so the Ephesian Christians, having been um, led to the Lord and the church established there by Paul, are expressing their concern for him. Paul senses their concern for him. And he's concerned for them. He wants to encourage them. He wants them to know everything that's going on. He wants them to know how he is. And he expresses that three times. These are communal blessings. It's picking up on everything that he has taught in the previous chapters that the church is God's new society for a new creation. And what we are seeing here is a mutual concern expressed for their common bond in Jesus Christ that they share. All right? Paul uh, means for them uh, to deepen their fellowship with him, but also with one another. He wants them to encourage their hearts. Paul uh, is in prison as he writes. Uh, He knows they're concerned for him. He's concerned uh, that they are concerned. And I want you to point here is, as Paul is expressing this, I never want you to belittle, to downplay the communion of the saints. It is a precious thing to belong to the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul shares a common bond with these Christians, and he's playing off that here. And he's saying, he's, he's uh, expressing, however, and he, he wants them to experience the communion of the saints, all right? Uh, and this is something that we need to appreciate, that we need to um, understand, that we need to experience as well. The Heidelberg Catechism, which I encourage you to memorize that first question and answer, is so precious. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Sterling was asking people this question in the park yesterday. Could we talk to you for a few moments about what is your only comfort in life and in death? Ask people that question. People on your job, people in your neighborhood. It's fascinating the answers that people give. You'd be very interested. And of course, then it's an entryway to tell people the goodness, the gospel, the goodness of the gospel. Because the answer is, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins and set me free from the tyranny of the devil. It goes on at length. I won't repeat it verbatim. The statement is, I belong. If you're a Christian, you belong. 
You belong to Jesus Christ, and because you belong to Jesus Christ, you belong to all who belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to the church. You belong to the body of Christ. You belong to the children of God. You belong to the church of the living God. And this is no small, insignificant thing. Stories in the papers and on the news uh, recently talk about gang killings and all the shootings that are going on in New York City. Do you know why people wind up in gangs? Because there is an innate, inherent yearning, longing to belong. And more often than not, if you study these things, if you talk to people involved in social studies uh, and sociology, it's because of the lack of a family, a lack of family life. You belong is no insignificant small thing. You belong to Jesus Christ and you belong to all who belong to Jesus Christ. That is precious. The communion of the saints, to be a member of the church of the living God. Look at verse 21. Tychicus is referred to as a beloved brother. Now, you and I know that Paul was not genetically related to Tychicus, right? He's related to Tychicus as a fellow Christian, as a fellow believer. And he says, he's my brother. He has become my brother in the Lord. And he says, not only that, he is a beloved brother. I have fond affection for him. I love him. And can I say to you, as your pastor, I love you. When I think of this congregation, and I think of you by name, and I think of you by face, and I think of you in the relationship of the histories that we have developed over the course of years, I love you. It's important that you know that. And that includes the knuckleheads among you. I love you too. But this is the church. We're to love one another. We're to think of one another. Not just as somebody who sits in the pew in front of me, behind me, or next to me, but to think of one another as my brother, as my sister, as my father, as my mother. Remember how Paul talks about that to the church? It's very interesting. The domestic imagery that is used in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, perhaps more explicitly in the New Testament, Paul says, I became a father to you. He can actually say to the church, I became a mother to you. I gave you birth. I led you to the Lord. I led you to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And now I became a mother to you. I, I gave you birth. And I long with all that is in me to see you mature and develop and grow to the fullness of Jesus Christ. I hope I'm not telling you things that are so self-evident or so uh, perhaps familiar that this is not striking. And I'm trying to impress it on your hearts so that you live it out more in your experience with one another. Is that you're brothers and sisters to one another. The older saints that are here, Greg O'Brien, Maybe me, at 68, Mr. Contreras, those of us that are older, are your fathers and, and, and mothers in the faith. And you should think of that. You should, you should consider one another as that. <clears throat> These uh, relationships are precious. 
and are to be considered as that. The church is family. Look back with me, if you will, at chapter uh, 4 in Ephesians. I said Paul's kind of summarizing things here. Look at chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Is that how you think? Now, look at the person next to you. Is that how you think of that person? We're members one of another. Look back at chapter 2 and verse 19. Look at chapter 2 and verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, this is the church. It's the household of God. It's a family. We're members one of another. Do not underestimate this. Do not downplay it. It is immense. It is significant as Paul talks about this. You've heard me mention this before. The popular saying in our society, you hear it bandied about, kind of thrown out without even thinking, blood is thicker than water. Anybody know that saying? You've heard that, right? I see some heads nodding, right? That's not true. You know what that's a reference to? It's a reference to the water of baptism. And it's saying, if you're related to me by blood, if you're my genetic brother or sister, you, you, you're tighter with me than you are with those in the church. That's not true. Don't let anybody ever tell you that. Water is thicker than blood. How do you know that? You know that from the Bible. Do you remember in the Old Testament when Israelites were rebelling against the Lord? And what did, what did God say? He said, strap a sword on, go down and smite them. Because blood is not thicker than water. The water of baptism, the water of commitment to Jesus Christ, the water of faith in Jesus Christ, the water which indicates, signifies one's relationship to the Lord is thicker than blood. It's more important than blood. And some of us experience this more than others. There are some who have been raised in Christian homes in this congregation, but you're the minority. The majority are those that have not been raised in Christian homes. The majority are those that don't have Christians in the family. Many, like myself, are the only Christians in our family. And I have to say, if I could use myself as an illustration, my relationship to each and every one of you is much closer than those to whom I have been related for 68 years. And when I get together with my family, I love my family. Please don't misunderstand. We just had a family reunion a few weeks ago. It was delightful to see them. But we talk about the weather, and we talk about sports, and we talk about traffic. Where are you going on vacation? I can't talk to them about the things that are most important to me. My faith. My love for Jesus Christ. My relationship with you. And it's very interesting when I meet people that I grew up with or my family, they never, ever ask me, how's your job? <laughs> I ask them, how's things going at work? 
go on forever and ever. You know why they don't want to know how I'm doing at work? Because they don't want to talk about church. <laughs> they don't want to talk about the Bible. They don't want to talk about faith. Our next door neighbor, who, who Julie and I love, we love him like a, like a son, has never, ever asked me <laughs> about my work. He knows what I do. He doesn't want to know. Look, I'm simply saying, all right, and I say this for the benefit specifically, particularly if you're like me, if you don't have family that are Christian, some of you do, and thank God that you do. It's an inestimable blessing. But if you're the only Christian in your family, if your parents aren't Christian, or if your siblings aren't Christian, right, if you have have relatives that are unbelieving, all right, please recognize this. The relationship you have with these people here transcends anything you will ever have with those by blood. Blood is not thicker than water. And I have had to tell people, like my dear friend Gerard Russo, whom you've heard me mention many times over the years, I've had to tell him, you know, you don't get to choose your brothers and your sisters. His brothers and his sisters all kinds of problems because they're not Christian. Lifestyle issues, one thing or the other. And Gerard is a a good Christian. He reads the Bible and he says, you know, I know I I need to love them. I said, but sometimes you have to love people from afar because getting entangled in the web of their lives will cause you misery and suffering and grief. Not that you should never do that, but they need to be limits. I would take a bullet for anybody in this congregation. I wouldn't necessarily do that for people in my family. Communal blessings. That's what Paul is talking about. Look at Matthew 12. Let me drive this point home. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and and sister and mother. Christ transforms relationships. Water is thicker than blood. Some of you know I was recently in Vermont. I had to preach at the United Reformed Church up there. I often go to Michigan, preach in the United Reformed Churches out there. I'm going to California to preach in the United Reformed Churches there in October. Do you know what I hear when I go to these churches? I hear their concern for you. How are our brothers and sisters in New York? 
and you should know, and I am not the best at relating this to you when I return from these trips, how over and over and over again people say, we're praying for you. We're praying for all the saints in New York. And I have to tell them, I said, I'm going to tell them that when I get back, and forgive me that I don't always do that, all right? Because these are people you will never meet. You will never meet them. And yet they have you in their hearts. Do you know how many people have letters or postcards on their refrigerators and every day pray for me, pray for Pastor Dan, pray for the leadership, and pray for you as a congregation? And they do that though they know they will never meet you. They will never know you personally. But you're in their hearts. That's what Paul's talking about. Tychicus, the beloved brother, so that you may know how I am, so that you may know what's going on, so he may encourage your hearts, that he may express my concern for you because he's related your concern for me. Communal blessing. When I think of that, when those people talk to me, I cry right in front of them. What an immense blessing that is. Yesterday I was at a wedding. Somebody came up to me and she said, we read all your articles, we read all your newsletters, and we just want to know, how are things going in New York? I never met this woman. Turns out I know her brother-in-law. We played a little Dutch bingo, right? So I know her brother-in-law, all right? But I never met this woman. That's, you see what I'm talking about? That's what Paul's doing. He's, he's, he's sending with Tychicus a letter. This is important for witness. I've told you this before as well, right? Remember back in chapter 3? Look at chapter 3 uh, in Ephesians. Yeah. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, those against who are conducting spiritual warfare, he says, there's something being communicated with them, to them, through the church. And what is that? It's how God has changed lives. How God has brought boys and girls, men and women, young and old, to saving faith in Jesus Christ and transformed them, brought them from death to life, brought them from sin to righteousness, brought them... And made them new creations and part of the new creation. And this is an important witness, and I've said this before, I want to encourage you in it, though, as Paul wants to encourage the Ephesian church, all right? There are 28 nationalities in this congregation. And I tell you, on Sunday when we have fellowship time, right, and we have bagels and coffee and cake and juice and one thing or the other, right, The unity of you people is palpable. You can touch it. You can taste it. That's why when it comes time to close down the building, somebody has to say, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. They're locking the doors. Because nobody wants to leave. And most of you afterwards, we're going to go over here, we're going to do this, we're going to go over because we want to be together. You realize we live in a city that's torn about by racial strife, right? 
black against white, brown against brown, white against white. It's in the news every day. And yet, Jesus Christ has brought people from 28 different nationalities here who love Jesus and love one another. Somebody, you know, when all this Black Lives Matter after George Floyd's murder happened, right, people were like, oh, you should do something. You you should do something. I said, we do something every Sunday. We have 28 nationalities. Sing the praises of God. Glorify and enjoy God. Out of their love and commitment to Jesus Christ and for one another. You think that's nothing? In the midst of New York City? Communal blessings. Communal blessings. God's new society for a new creation. Messiah's Reformed Fellowship, you are God's new society for a new creation. But concluding blessings as well. Verses 23 and 24. So I was preparing for this sermon. One commentator asked this question. What do you think of this? You can tell me after. He asked the question, he says, what's the high point of corporate worship? How would you answer that question? Every Sunday we get together, we have service at 1030 and 1130. What would you say is the high point of our corporate worship? You might say it's the call to worship. God actually comes. He's here. And God is calling us into his presence. Though we are hell-deserving sinners, and he is, a, he is a consuming fire, he speaks to me and says, Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think of that sometimes, it knocks my socks off. Is that the high point of the worship? Or maybe, maybe we're very cerebral and intellectual and reformed, right? Maybe, maybe the high point of the worship service, the answer to that question would be the sermon. We want to hear the word. Jesus Christ is speaking to us. We are word-centered. We want to hear what God says. Okay. This commentator said, the high point, the crown jewel in the worship service is the benediction. He says that commenting on these verses here. He says, this is the crown jewel of the book of Ephesians, is the benediction that Paul pronounces here. Peace to the brothers, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, love, faith, grace. He said, that is the crown jewel of any corporate worship service. Because when Pastor Dan and myself at the end of the service pronounce a benediction, we usually do so from Numbers chapter... Turn there with me, if you would, Numbers chapter 6. You've heard it, I'm sure, if you've been here any length of time. Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. Pastor Dan is not just making a pious wish. And you should never think of it like that. Why this commentator said this is the crown jewel of a corporate worship service 
is because in the benediction, God is doing something. Read it with me, if you will. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And though this is not read every week, it is immensely important. Look at the next verse. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. God is doing something in the benediction. This is not just a pious wish. It's not just a punctuation to the worship service. It's not just, okay, it's over. It's an expression that God is doing something. And when, when it says, the Lord will lift up his countenance upon you, it's God saying, I will smile upon you. Think of that. What do you deserve? What do I deserve? My sin, your sin, has offended God. God takes it personally. In Genesis 6, he says, his heart was grieved and he was regretted that he had ever made man. Sin affects God personally. The sins you committed before you got here today. The sins you committed in the 68 years of my life prior to today. My sins of thought, word, and deed, each and every one of them have offended God. And one sin is an infinite offense against the infinite majesty and holiness of God. And is worthy of an infinite punishment. One But God says to you, you've been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been washed in his blood. My smile is on you. Now, if you've never thought of yourself that way, and I speak particularly to those of you with sensitive consciences, but my sin, Pastor. You know the sin I repented of yesterday? I, I did it again today. I'm going to repent, but I, I think I'll do it again tomorrow. Your sensitive conscience that says, I don't, I don't know that God would ever want anything to do with the likes of me. I'm just a shlemiel and a shlemazel. And I amount to nothing. And the crown jewel is God says, I smile on you if you're a Christian. Are you a Christian? Are you washed in the blood? Are you forgiven? Are you reconciled? God smiles on you. It's got to be astounding. So I don't know. I think maybe the commentator's right. Maybe the crown jewel of a worship service is the benediction. But we're running out of time. Pardon my loquaciousness. Look at Paul's ben, uh, concluding ben blessings here, his benediction. All right, Verse 23. 
peace. Peace. Realize Paul's summarizing everything that he said in the letter, right? He says earlier in Ephesians, Jesus Christ is our peace. Jesus Christ came to Ephesus and he made peace. He made peace. There's no more no more division between Jew and Gentile. He's torn down the dividing wall of hostility. The wall between Jew and Gentile, the wall between Jews and Arabs, the wall between black and white. You see, peace is never going to be affected by that Tower of Babel on the East River. Never. Because peace can only come in Jesus Christ. And if you read testimonies, and I know some of you have, Sarah uh, Bakota is going through a book now about an, an Arab who was a, a, an intense Muslim who came to know Jesus Christ as Lord. And there's now peace between Jew and, Christ, and, and Arab because of Jesus, not because of the UN. Peace. Peace. What's peace? Peace is reconciliation. And I hope you know that peace. Peace, is, peace, peace on a horizontal level can only occur because peace has first occurred on a vertical level. That is reconciliation between Jew and Arab, black and white, Jew and Gentile, can only occur if first and foremost you have been reconciled to God. You see, because by nature, as Paul said earlier, we are children of wrath. By nature, we are under God's condemnation. By nature, we are separated from God. Our sin has separated us from God. Your sin has separated you from God. And God is not your friend. We were talking to somebody yesterday. He's like, yeah, 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 me and God, we're like this. Well, the Bible says you're like this. God is your enemy because of your sin. But the marvel of the gospel is that God has loved his enemies and sent his son to pay the penalty for their sins, to reconcile them to himself and to make peace. So that Paul can say we have peace with God Through Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And look at the text. Sorry, rush on here. Peace be to the brothers and love. Love with faith. This is the love we were talking about previously. Love is the origin and the consequence of peace. It's the origin of peace because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And what's the consequence of God's love to sinners? Is their love to God and their love for one another. Those communal blessings. Yeah, all right, we're doing it. Conclusion. All right, look back in chapter 2. We're just going to take a couple of minutes here. Chapter 2, verse 14. 
For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, right? And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul says, your state by nature... Romans 8, 70 says, the sinful mind is hostile to God, at war with God, and does not submit to God, nor can it do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In and of yourself, you can't please God. By anything that you do, by anything that you are, you can't please God. But Jesus Christ can do it through the cross. Read on. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. And then go back to verses 5 and following. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, Christ made us alive together. By grace you have been saved, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And then turning back to Ephesians 6, Paul ends with this. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the only place in Ephesians where believers' love for Jesus Christ is made explicit. What's he saying? He's, He's stressing here a personal relationship and commitment to Jesus Christ. So as he concludes, as he sums up, he says, here are these blessings, peace, love, faith, grace, For those who love Jesus and are wholeheartedly devoted and committed to him. Does that describe you this morning? I hope it describes you. There is such a thing as a nominal Christian. Nominal is name. A nominal Christian is somebody who is a Christian in name only. They maybe have been baptized as a child. Maybe they were baptized as an adult. Maybe they made a profession of faith. Maybe they walked an aisle. Maybe they identify. I identify as a Christian. But there's an absence, a void of love for Jesus Christ. And no wholehearted devotion and commitment to him as Lord of your life. And as Paul pronounces these blessings, he says, no. These blessings, this benediction, is upon all those who love Christ and are committed to him. If that describes you, God's smile is on you. What a marvelous way to end the letter. To think. That God smiles on me? In Zephaniah, I love this verse. 
Sam Storms wrote a whole book about it called The Singing God. I encourage you to read it. Although I don't agree with everything that Sam Storms says, I don't know that I ever agree with everything that anybody has ever written. But anyway, he says, the Lord delights to sing over you. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you are committed to him, the Lord's smile is on you. And he delights to sing over you. What more needs to be said? Except amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this book. We pray that we take all its lessons to heart. We are thankful that you are a God who smiles on your people and that you delight to sing over us. Hear us now as we sing your praises and take delight in glorifying and enjoying you. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.